0: let us begin in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into this great work, The Love That Satisfies, which, as you know, if you are a faithful listener, is a reflection of Christopher West's into Benedict XVI's encyclical, God is Love, where in the first half of Benedict's great work, God is Love, he reflects into the relationship between eros and agape. Eros, that human and erotic love, and agape, that divine sacrificial love. If you have been with us you can all but speak to this yourself at this point. I mean, we are deep in theology of the body, deep in the love that satisfies. In fact, we are in the last chapter, uh, The Journey of Love, and I am flying solo this evening. So if you do have any questions, comments, observations, do not hesitate to send me your emails uh, to jholjmj at yahoo.com, or you can just go to my website, joholcraft.org, and just hit the contact link button there. Send your email on its way. I, I love to engage the, the Catholic faith, the Christian faith, and certainly, and most especially, uh, this topic, Theology of the Body. Uh, so with that, let us uh, jump into this work. If you have the book out there, The Love That Satisfies, we are on page 141 of chapter 9, and as I noted last week, as we were starting this chapter, you know, Christopher West does a beautiful job of coming full circle. You know, every great author Uh, comes full circle in their writing. You know, in his opening chapter, it's about encountering God who is love, and uh, now we're talking about the stuff of the journey of love, how we are called to journey into this love. And so, uh, with that, we are on excerpt uh, 57, and this excerpt reads as follows, "'Love is not merely a sentiment. Sentiments come and go. A sentiment can be a marvelous first spark,' but it is not the fullness of love, huh? So as Christopher West reflects, you know, sentiments and attractions are fickle. Fickle. You know, it's a fascinating thing to go into sacred scripture and to see how God has this love affair with shepherds, huh? From Abraham to Moses uh, to David to Joseph to Amos, so many shepherds. Christ himself, of course, is uh, the good shepherd, the great shepherd. Why? Well, because sheep are so fickle. Well, my dear friends, we are fickle. So we need uh, the good shepherd. Huh? We need the great shepherd. We fall in love and of love. At, at one moment, we are very content with our experiences of love, and the next moment, we are very discontent with our experience of love. At one moment, we are satisfied, the next dissatisfied. Our sentiments and attractions Often disappear as quickly as they appear. And, uh, you know, one might experience them toward any number of people. I mean, Christopher West makes note here, and I think it's important. You know, he says, Should I confess to my wife I'm in love with another woman because I experienced a stirring of emotion toward this other woman or found her attractive? I mean, this is nonsense. And such a notion demonstrates just how shallow love is when we reduce it to mere sentiment. A sentiment can be a marvelous first spark, Benedict XVI observes, but it most certainly is not the fullness of love. This is such an essential point that in many ways and other terms we've talked about, you know, in today's world, whether it be a sitcom, a poem, a movie, we hear the words, I love you, and uh, the couple may have just gotten to know each other. How is that possible? if you put it in the context of the deeper love. You know, Bishop Carol Voitia, long before becoming Pope John Paul II, offered a beautiful analysis of this truth in his book, Love and Responsibility. It was here where he coined that term, you've heard me speak to, raw material. He describes the rousing of sentiment and attraction as the raw material of love, but Warn that we must never mistake it for loves, and I love this, finished form. So the rousing of sentiment and attraction as the raw material of love is necessary to the extent that it develops that more authentic expression of love, and in the words of John Paul II, finishes love, finishes the form of love. You know, such raw material can furnish the opportunity for love to grow and mature. But sentiments and attractions must always, as John Paul II speaks to it, be held together by the correct gravitational pull. If they are not, as Benedict XVI reminds us, they may add up not to love, but to its direct opposite. You know, for oftentimes, what we call love, if we take a deeper look, as I was just noting, turns out to be contrary To all appearances, only a form of utilization of the person. This is one of John Paul II's favorite words when he's contemplating and reflecting into the nature of the human person and how we interact with one another. Do we see the other person as just an object? As utility? This is where he coined one of his great phrases. Things were created to be used and man loved. We use man and love things. So, what can we say of this correct gravitational pull, Well, the correct gravitational pull that enables sentiment and attraction to become love is the value of the person as a what? Person. When love is based merely on attraction and sentiment— The decisive feature of the relationship is not the good of the other as a person, but the pleasure of the sentiment and sensual reactions that the other person stirs within me. When the pleasure dissipates, which it inevitably does, so does the quote-unquote love. This is the danger of how we think about love today, because ultimately it will fade. In such a relationship, as voitia writes, John Paul II, one person belongs to another as an object of use and tries to derive some pleasure from allowing that other to make use of him or her. Such an attitude on both sides is utterly incompatible with love. Such an attitude, in fact, amounts to little more than egoism, and building a relationship on egoism is like building a house on sand. Carol Voitier goes on to say in Love and Responsibility, the ricketiness of the structure must show itself in time. It is one of the greatest of sorrows when love proves to be not what it was thought to be, but its diagonal opposite. Mm, beautiful. So, does the fickleness of our sentiments and attractions and the danger of confusing them with love mean that it is our duty to distrust the human heart? John Paul II answers that question emphatically, no. It is only to say that we must remain in control of it directly out of theology of the body. And is this not what lies at the heart of why we are studying theology of the body? Because again, we are all familiar with that word love, but are we familiar with the finished form of love? we must learn how to direct the reactions of our hearts towards the true dignity of the human person. We were created in the image and likeness of God, and it is when we encounter the God who is love that we discover the beauty of His creation, His children. And this is why it is so important that we always enter into that in-God moment first, because it is only out from that in God, drawing from love itself, that we will understand how to direct the reactions of our hearts towards the true dignity of the human person. My dear friends, we must follow Christ the whole way to Calvary. We must allow him to crucify, to crucify the consumer orientation of eros, that erotic human love, infusing it instead with his own sacrificial love. Let us always keep in our rear view mirror what we are saying here. Remember what the word crucify means, what is excruciating. It is literally excruciating, from the cross. What comes to us from the cross? His mercy, his favor, his grace, his goodness and the perfect imitation of love, divine sacrificial love, agape. When we enter into this great mystery of Christ on the cross, we begin to infuse eros with agape. It's life-giving, my friends. Out from this radio program, I have found myself in so many conversations about this very point. A lot of people have said to me, well, I just I think the emphasis on sacrifice is overstated. My dear friends, this is the essence of our faith, right? (laughs) Calvary. Okay, uh, this is the icon of the face of the Father. This is where we learn the language of love. So we can never put an overemphasis on the cross, but only contemplate more the cross, so that we might understand better how we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and certainly if we are married, how we are called to love our spouse. This is a lifelong process, a lifelong process of purification, maturation, and one that simply will never end. It is to remember, my friends, what the word sacrifice means. Let us never forget that. Sacrum fitse to make holy. We look upon the cross reminding us, that what holiness looks like is the greatness of God's love. We imitate that love, and in so doing, we enter into that deeper meaning of what holiness is all about. If this great call that comes out from Vatican II is this universal call to holiness, then let us never forget that we learn from the language of holiness that is revealed on the cross. This leads us to this next quote that comes to us from Benedict Sixteenth, he says this, The process of purification and maturation by which eros comes fully into its own is always open-ended. Love is never finished and complete. Throughout life, it changes and matures and thus remains faithful to itself. Now, how easily at times do the words, I love you, <laughs> roll off our tongue, especially to our spouses. And uh, to my wife, when I say, I love you, it's true. I do. I love her. However, as Christopher West notes, and I think this is so important, it might be more appropriate, not that we'd go running around saying this, but I am learning to love you in light of what Benedict XVI just said. I am growing in my love for you. For love, as Benedict XVI wisely observes, is never finished, is never complete. Throughout life, it changes and matures. Here, recall that story that I shared a few weeks ago about that couple who'd been married for 75 years, and the question is asked, how have you done it? And the wife, uh, 92, says what? We're still getting to know each other. In effect, what is she saying? We are still maturing in God's love. We are still embracing the meaning of what it means to become more in God's love. Voitia in Love and Responsibility puts it this way, Love should be seen as something which in a sense never is, but is always only becoming. And what it becomes depends upon the contribution of both persons and the depth of their commitment. Oh, this is one of my favorite quotes of John Paul II. Listen to this again. Love should be seen as something which, in a sense, never is, but is always only becoming. And what it becomes depends upon the contribution of both persons and the depth of their commitment. We are only who we are called to be, my dear friends, to the extent that we are constantly becoming the person who we are called to be. It never ends. In other words, there is always going to be a gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be. And to the degree that we enter into the depth of the greatness of God's love, will we discover the wonder and beauty of how we are called to share in this love. Oh, so rich. You know, if you were to go to Paul's letter to uh, the Corinthians, I'm thinking of his a second letter to Corinth. He boasts of his accomplishments. <laughs> Not to demonstrate how ridiculous such boasting is, but also to demonstrate that in reality, all we have going for us is what? Our weakness. My dear friends, less is more. It is to say, the more we empty ourselves of all of those things that we are attached to, the more room there is for God to abide. And so we look at ourselves in the mirror, mindful of the constant need for conversion, mindful that there's always this gap between the person we are and the person that we ought to be. And what else does Paul say as it relates to grace and, and, and weakness? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Keva says, there is no need to be dismayed if love sometimes follows torturous ways. Grace has the power to make straight the paths of human love. In God's grace, he writes straight with crooked lines. What does Romans five twenty remind us? Where sin arises, grace abounds all the more. God's grace is his favor. You know, I taught uh, grade school for five years. I've taught at the high school level and, and the university level, and I, I have to admit, you know, maybe I've had my favorites are those students who just, you know, they just did a little extra. And maybe I favored them a little. I don't know. <laughs> but God has no favorites. God has no favorites. We're all his favorites. Why? Because God's love is absolute. Huh? We're all his favorites. And for that reason, he gives us his grace. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Let us hear those words again from Carol Voitia. These words are so important. There is no need to be dismayed if love sometimes follows torturous ways. Grace has the power to make straight the paths of human love. Remember what grace is. The very essence of God, the very goodness of God, the infusion of bliss, of of joy. The, The Greek word is charis, the root res, Razz, what is this? What's the image that it's tied to? Sap. What is sap? Well, sap uh, is what comes from the tree, right? It contains uh, the water of the tree, the nutrients of the tree, even the hormones of the tree. It contains all of the life giving properties of the tree. My dear friends, grace is like sap. What we receive in God's grace is all of those life giving properties. First and foremost, the power to love. So rich is the unveiling of God's love. And when we contemplate this great love, and we draw from that grace, we seek that grace, we will be able to overcome those obstacles that are before us in our relationships, just not with our spouses, yes, first and foremost, but also with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, dropping down here, a longer quote from Benedict Sixteenth. He says this, to want the same thing and to reject the same thing. This was recognized by antiquity as the authentic content of love. The one becomes similar to the other, and this leads to a community of will and thought. The love story between God and man consists in the very fact that this communion of will increases in a communion of thought and sentiment, and thus our will and God's will increasingly coincide. God's will is no longer for me an alien will, something imposed on me from without by the commandments, but it is now my own will. Hmm. I think Christopher West offers an important reflection here. I mean, how many people do you know, maybe it's even true of, of yourself, who consider Christianity nothing but a long list of oppressive rules to follow, especially when it comes to sex and marital love? I mean, how many people do we know who look at the Catholic Church as some punitive, institutional, authoritarian, waving its finger? Jesus Christ did not die on a cross and rise from the dead to give us a long list of rules to follow. He came to reconcile us in the love story between God and man, as Benedict XVI puts it. <clears throat> and to the degree that we enter into this love story, will we come to realize that Christ's mission is not to impose a bunch of rules on us. On the contrary, Christ's mission is to set us free from the rules. Let's consider this in more detail. St. Paul tells us, if we are led by the Holy Spirit, we are what? Free from the law. If you were to go to Galatians 5.18. But this doesn't mean that we are free to break the law. Christ set us free to fulfill the law. Consider Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ fulfills the law, as the word implies, by living it to the fullest. This means not only meeting law's demands externally, but living them to the full internally from the depths of the heart. Eros agape love needs no law for it is the law of life, even life eternal. I mean, we all know that it's possible to follow the rules without ever growing in holiness. We've we've spoken to this before. It's a legalism, a formalism, or a moralism. It leads to hypocrisy. Matthew 23, you blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup, of the plate, that the outside also may be clean." This is what the grace of the gospel affords us. It presents us not only with a law to follow, but with the power, his grace, to fulfill it. Incidentally, my friends, I'm not using that word power loosely, and certainly nor is Christopher West. Why? Well, when Jesus Christ says, I will give you the power of the Holy Spirit, what is he saying? I will give you the explosion of the greatness of God's life-giving love. The dynamus is the Greek, where we get the word dynamite. There's also the Greek word energia, where we get the word energy. This life-giving energy that is like dynamite. It is explosive. This is my grace. This is what I give you in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And certainly, when we talk about the stuff of, of love and abiding in God's love, this is what we intend to mean. And so as it relates to God's law, Christ didn't come into the world to shove laws down our rebellious throats. He came into the world to change our hearts so that we would no longer need the laws. And what does the catechism say? If you were to flip to paragraph 1968 of the catechism, what do we read? But the law of the gospel does not add new external precepts, but proceeds to reform the heart, the root of human acts, where man chooses between the pure and the impure. Now, this doesn't mean laws serve no purpose for us. To the degree that our hearts are still rebelling against God's will, we still need his law to tell us where our hearts need to change. But if we welcome God's grace in our lives and allow it to work within us, we come, as Benedict says, to experience with God a communion of thought and sentiment, and thus our will and God's will increasingly coincide. Beautiful from Benedict Sixteenth. To the extent that we reject what God rejects and want what he wants, we are free from the law. But again, this does not mean we are free to break the law. We are free to fulfill the law because we no longer desire to break it. Christopher West offers up an example, an illustration. He says, to demonstrate this point in my lectures, I love this. (laughs) I usually call on a married man and ask him if he has any desire to murder his wife. So far, as he says, thank God, I've gotten the answer I expect. An emphatic no. Then I'll ask him if he needs the commandment, "'Thou shalt not murder thy wife.'" He realizes, of course, that he does not. In this case, the husband is free from the law, not free to break it, but free to fulfill it because he does not desire to break it. To draw the point out further, I'll then call on his wife and ask her if she has ever seen her husband slamming his fists, exclaiming, "'Why do those old celibate men in Rome tell me I can't murder my wife? What do they know about marriage anyway?' The audience usually laughs, heads nod, and they begin to get my point. We are bitter toward the law only when we desire to break it. And as Christopher West closes his thought out, I mean, we can pick any teaching of the church that we might be bitter about. Chances are it has something to do with sex, All right? We're not usually bitter about the fact that the church calls us to feed the hungry, per se. Here's a proposal that Christopher West. Throws out there to chew on. Maybe the problem is not with the teachings of the church. Maybe, just maybe. The problem is precisely what Jesus said it was. If you'd go to Matthew 19:8, what do we read? We have hard hearts. So maybe the solution is not to throw the church's teaching out the window. Maybe the solution instead is to get on our knees and humbly pray, Lord, please change my heart. Open my heart what is the first act of prayer but to open our hearts to god we cannot receive what god wants to give us if our hearts are not first open right do we go to god saying lord listen your servant is speaking or speak your servant is listening do we go to god with hearts closed or hearts open where are we at in our journey of faith at the very least my dear friends my dear listeners What I encourage you to do is to ask the question, why does the church teach this or that on the topic of marriage and sexuality? And for 2,000 years, they have bore witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, rooted in sacred scripture. If you do not understand it, then ask the question. Advance it into a conversation and dialogue that you might discover the deeper meaning of why the church teaches what it teaches. This is so important. You know, my dear friends, it is a humbling honor to be able to journey with people who ask me about the things we talk about here on Now Wednesday Evening's Theology of the Body. It really is. You know, Peter reminds us in reverence and humility to give reasons for the hope that is inside of us. When we talk about the confident assurance, as Catholics, that we have in its teachings on marriage and sexuality. Peter reminds us and all Christians, whatever the topic may be, to be able to have that conversation, to be able to have that dialogue. Remember what the word dialogue means: dia logos, right? Logos logic, the word. Logic is the instrument to reason. Dia two: two people are talking, having that open conversation with principles. And in reverence and humility, discovering truth. So important. Okay, we are out of time. We will pick up here uh, next week. Again, do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, and, or you can go to my website at Joelcraft.org. All right, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.